If you'll gather round me children a story I will tell About pretty boy Floyd, an outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well all right, we are back. It appears that Bill Wagman will not be able to join us for today's program, so I think uh, in lieu of that, I will actually read the, uh, the nice piece that was in the Sacramento Bee from Sam McManus about Bill. We'll read most of it anyway. But uh, said Sam McManus in the Sunday Bee, March 18th, Up and down a sleepy tree-lined residential street in Davis, all is quiet and dark on this Sunday evening, save occasional flickering blue TV light leaking from drawn living room curtains. Homeowners, swaddled in the sucker of suburbia, are ready to call it a night and brace for the work week ahead. But at Bill Wagman's house, the tan one with the porch light burning, something is afoot. A phalanx of cars, more than a few hybrids, this is Davis after all, line his and his neighbor's curbs. A trickle of people amble up to the walkway, knock softly, enter smiling, and slip Wagman some greenbacks, tens and twenties mostly, which he stuffs in the back pocket of his jeans. They make themselves at home in the living room, lined six rows deep with folding chairs and a sofa wedged off to the side. There they find a slight man with salt and pepper hair wearing a corduroy shirt, slouched in a chair. Being a good host, Wagman makes the introductions. This is Chuck, he says. Chuck is Chuck Brodsky, veteran singer-songwriter from North Carolina who a few nights earlier performed before 900 at the Uptown Theater in Napa. But in a few minutes, this folky, who's a staple of the festival circuit, will be playing before, oh, it looks like maybe 30 on Monarch Lane. House concerts, which have been around since Primitive Man first constructed shelter and carved instruments, have seen a revival in recent years as venues for folk and bluegrass have withered and the more sedate baby boomer audiences shies away from raucous clubs. Most house shows are sporadic, even off-on propositions, though Sharon Carl's been holding them steadily in Auburn since 2007. Wagman has opened his house and pantry to singers and fans since 1993. Many singers also appear in his weekly radio show on KDVS, UC Davis's campus station. It's a money-losing venture, actually, for the retired UC Davis IT worker. That wad of cash in Wagman's back pocket, it will all go to Brodsky. When the living room starts filling, mostly Davisites, but a small Sacramento and Woodland contingent too, Brodsky slips away to Wagman's green room, a book-lined study just down the hall from the bathroom. He can be heard tuning and strumming his guitar, punctuated with the occasional vocal murmur. Wagman, meanwhile, attends to the guest's needs, which are few. The chips and guacamole are already out, as are the Milano cookies and water bottles. He gives a vigorous shake to the Santa Cruz organic lemonade bottle, then cracks the lid. A lot of the bigger venues are not willing to do this because they're trying to make a living at it, Wagman says. It's a place for folk artists to come and play because otherwise they wouldn't. I've been doing this long enough that musicians know it. It's to the point, I don't actively seek them out, they come to me. Over the years, Wagman has altered his home to make it more concert-friendly. He raised the wall separating the dining and living rooms, creating an expansive space. But he doesn't opt for fancy decor. Concert goers are free to spy his bookshelf, not one, but two copies of the Whole Earth Catalog, DVD collection, an affinity for director Terry Gilliam, and his retro turntable. Anyway, a lot of detail about Bill's house, maybe more than he'd like to see in the Sacramento Bee. But uh, as far as I know, Sam didn't, didn't reveal the location of the wall safe, or the fact that it's actually a real Picasso on the wall. Hey, just kidding, Bill. But no, this is a, this is a wonderful piece celebrating what uh, what what some people do very well in, in Davis, and some people from KDVS do well, which is um, well. Let me quote Franz Kassing. She sent a, she sent this this blurb out 
to the KDVS listserv saying, a very nice piece showing that Bill Wagman has long held the ideals of KDVS, community, service, and independent music. So we definitely agree with our esteemed colleague, uh, Franz Kassing, and uh, say, you know, cheers to Bill Wagman, who will, who will hopefully uh, be on the show in the weeks to come to uh, fill in some of the details about uh, what he does. We have to agree that having a concert in your own house on a regular basis is a pretty cool thing to offer up. All right, let's do a few science topics here and maybe some topics where science meets politics. We must start off with a correction on last week's program. We described the flea, which was discovered in a Chinese fossil that dates back to the Jurassic era, as being the size of a quarter. Well, after doing the math, it appears we overstated the case. The flea was more like the size of a nickel which means we may have to downgrade the size of the brontosaurus flea collar from that of a hot tub to that of a sofa. And yes, before you write in, we do know that technically there, there is no such thing as a brontosaurus. We just don't think it would be, have been quite as funny if Fred Flintstone's car had been knocked over by an apatosaurus set of ribs. You know, we hardly ever get a chance to use the Flintstones theme song on this program. But at some point in the future, we're big fans, Mr. Merlin and I, of, of some of the fantastic little ditties they've attached to, uh, to, to TV shows over the years. And sometime in 2012, we're going to do a whole segment looking back at some of the great hunks of music that uh, were written, and unfortunately, in many cases, uh, attached to a rather sad product, i.e. the show itself. But, uh, you know, actually, that opinion, like many of those heard in this program, we want to stress, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But actually, you know, we're pretty sure that not only the host, but also KDVS, our sponsors, and the regions all enjoy the following piece of music. And for those unfamiliar with it, that was the theme to a 60s TV show called The Munsters. All right, an area where science certainly does meet politics uh, would be the matter of tsunami warnings. Tsunamis, as we all know, are a natural phenomenon associated as they are with earthquakes which affect the Earth's oceans. But I guess in keeping with the idea that it makes sense to cut a million dollars out of a city budget to stop picking up leaves while you give $200 million to a sports arena, we have the federal government now uh, contemplating cutting back on our tsunami warning system, evidently as a cost-saving measure. We quote from the Sacramento Bee editorial of March 15th, The U.S. coastline is under increasing siege from rising sea levels caused by climate change. California, the rest of the West Coast, and Hawaii also face the danger of tsunamis. As we witnessed a year ago, when the ripples of the devastating earthquake in Japan deluged harbors in Crescent City and Santa Cruz and caused nearly $60 million in damage across the state. 
So it is the epitome of penny-wise and pound-foolish for the Obama administration to propose cutting the nation's tsunami warning and preparedness programs. At issue is a $1 million trim in the $11 million annual budget for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to operate and maintain a network of 39 high-tech ocean buoys that send critical data to tsunami warning centers in Alaska and Hawaii. Also in the chopping block is $3.6 million that is about one-fourth of the annual grants that states use for tsunami zone maps, evacuation plans, warning signs, and public education programs. I don't know. If you've ever been to the island of Kauai on its north shore, which is decidedly tsunami-prone, you see the signal horns set up about the place to warn you if a tsunami's coming. Well, you just would hate to see that system go down. For that matter, if you're planning a nice fish dinner in Santa Cruz in the near future, or, or not too near future, it might be nice to know if a tsunami's a-coming, wouldn't you think? Here's another item where, uh, I guess the judicial system meets science. According to Carol J. Williams in the LA Times, the sugar industry is taking on the makers of high fructose corn syrup. Noted Mr. Williams, they're the two bad boys of the American diet linked to a variety of ailments including obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. But now sugar is taking high fructose corn syrup to court in a landmark battle over which is the greater evil. In a lawsuit that goes before a Los Angeles federal judge Wednesday, sugar producers accuse their corn industry rivals of false advertising in a campaign that casts the liquid sweetener as, quote, nutritionally the same as table sugar, unquote, and claims, quote, your body can't tell the difference, unquote. Sugar forces argue that high fructose corn syrup is far less healthy than their product and are demanding the ads run by the Corn Refiners Association be halted and that the Corn Association pay unspecified monetary damages. The article notes that concern about the health effects of the corn-based product began escalating about a decade ago when the Surgeon General first expressed alarm over the rapid and ubiquitous spread of the sweetener in processed foods. This is something we've talked to Michael Pollan about. And I would add, this, this debate uh, is something we would certainly welcome some input from our nutrition experts here at UC Davis on. In court papers, the sugar industry says the nation's soaring rise in obesity and diabetes has dovetailed with the penetration of the synthesized corn sweetener in soft drinks, condiments, bread, cookies, jam, and syrups. The corn forces respond, there's nothing dishonest about their ads, and they will prove it in court. This piece does contain some hair-raising statistics. Notes that Americans consume an average of 47 pounds of sugar per person, that was in 2010, plus 35 pounds of high-fructose corn syrup, which is more than three times the per capita sweetener intake elsewhere in the world, according to stats of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That means the average American consumes 888 calories per day from sweeteners. Just did the math on that. That's the equivalent of more than a six-pack of Coke, the calories contained in. And that's like eating four and a half extra Hershey bars a day. Sounding off on this controversy was Michael Gorin, director of the Child Obesity Research Center at the USC's Keck School of Medicine notes that medical research on the metabolic effects of consuming sugar versus high-fructose corn syrup has been limited, but consistent in indicating heightened risks from the liquid sweetener. Said Michael Gorin, there's definitely a difference in metabolic fate and outcome of fructose ingestion relative to glucose. 
Gorin noted that high fructose corn syrup contains more of the former ingredient, as its name implies. So the more you tip the scale toward fructose, the more those negative effects kick in. Said Gorin, table sugar made from cane or beets is 50% fructose, 50% glucose. And the molecules are bonded in a way that slows the body's absorption of the fructose. By contrast, high fructose corn syrup is typically 55% fructose, and some formulas contain as much as 90%, elevating blood sugar levels more swiftly. Corn industry representatives contend that any confusion about high fructose corn syrup syrup stems from the name and would be resolved by just changing it to, quote, corn sugar, unquote, which they've been trying to do for the past year. And by the way, this rebranding effort is also opposed by the sugar industry. Evidently, James Turner, a Washington attorney who heads Citizens for Health, has taken Sugar's side in a legal battle. I don't know whether they're a legitimate group or an astroturf, but at any rate, said Mr. Turner, if Sugar wanted to change its name to Highly Nutritious Vitamins, we would oppose that too. Meanwhile, at the FDA, spokesman Tamara Ward said the corn industry's September 2010 petition for the name change is still pending before the agency and we are actively working on it. Well, hell, something as elaborate as changing a name is not something you're going to try and rush into in under, say, two or three years now, is it? Holy cow. Hey, FDA, can we change the name or not? Well, we're going to think about that. We'll think about it next year. We'll think about it the year after. We're going to think about it. Doggone it, we just can't make up our minds. All right, here's an item uh, of an interface between science and something that's highly explosive. That would be romance. And frankly, when you're trying to mix science and romance, you always know that you're, on, you're skating on pretty thin ice. That being the case, I'm going to read verbatim the text of the Week magazine, March 23rd issue, in their health and science section. And I quote, Men who say their wives or girlfriends deliberately pick fights may be onto something. A new study shows that in romantic relationships, men feel best when they can tell that their significant others are happy. Women, on the other hand, are most content when their partners are upset or agitated because the intensity of their emotions show they're invested in the relationship. Researchers videotaped 156 married and unmarried couples discussing recent episodes that had upset them. Then they had the couples watch the tape and answer questions about how they felt at different points. They discovered that, Quote, women tend to want to engage around conflict. Massachusetts General Hospital psychologist Shiri Cohn tells NPR.org. That's because women feel most connected when they can tell their partners are distressed or when the men understand that the women are suffering. Men, on the other hand, find conflict threatening and feel best about their relationships when their partners are in a good mood. How can both styles hope to peacefully coexist? The more men and women try to be empathetic to their partner's feelings, Cohen said, the happier they are. That means that women have to accept men when they're blithely content, while men must be willing to deal with women's occasional needs to be unhappy. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. However, I I will go out on a limb slightly to note that Based upon my life experience, I believe there's something to this. I did the disclaimer, right? Yes. Okay. I I think I should get out now. Let's take a short break. Maybe go back to some of those great TV uh, hits from the 50s and 60s. 
Here's a wonderful piece of music that was a TV theme song for the uh, early 60s show called The Virginian. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 